The scripture reading for this morning is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Our father, Steve Flager, was right earlier when he said that I am not worthy to stand here and preach, and I feel my unworthiness now. And I rejoice in you because I feel your worthiness at one and the same time. You are a gracious God. You are a merciful God. I'm just remembering where Paul said in, I believe it's Second Corinthians 1, who is worthy of these things? And his answer is no one. And yet a few verses later, he said, God has made us sufficient for these things. And so I forsake trust in myself now, Lord, and I trust alone in the righteousness of Christ. I trust alone in the holiness of Christ and in the blood of Christ to cover my sin and my waywardness. I trust alone in Jesus Christ to add power to his word and application to his word for every single person that's here. It's not an accident that any of us are here today. You have brought us here. You have a word to speak to us here. And I trust in you alone to get that done. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight now, our Lord, our God, and our Redeemer. We trust in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Lord willing, tomorrow afternoon I will be boarding a plane and flying out to California for about... 10 days. My nephew is getting married and he asked me a few months ago if I would do the wedding and of course I said yes, he's my nephew, what am I supposed to do? Got to go to California, what a a bummer. So hopefully uh, things will go well and I'll get on that plane and go out there. I'm going to spend a few extra days visiting with family and friends in the Lord. It turns out that my friends have jobs, so during the middle of the day I'm going to be working, so feel free to call me, feel free to email, I'll be totally available. These aren't vacation days for me. I'll be working hard on my book and a couple of other things like that, and then in the evenings I will visit with friends and family. So as you can imagine, I've been thinking a lot about my homeland lately, and one thing that's really stuck out to me as I've thought about that is the mountains. Because I've always loved the mountains ever since I was a very little boy. I have memories going back five, six years old of of climbing up fairly substantial mountains, spending a lot of my time out there, and just years and years and years of experiences I have 
being out there in the mountains. It probably is their dominating physical presence, but for whatever reason, I've always had a sense of the presence of the Lord when I'm out there. I always feel my smallness and feel His greatness. Even before I was a believer, I felt those things. And then when I became a believer, the mountains became a really sacred place to me because, like I said, I already felt a a sense of the presence of God. And now through Jesus Christ, I came to know Him. And so the mountains became like a sanctuary to me. And I have so many experiences that I remember of being up there and communing with my Father. So many that I could just never even think to, to remember them all. Here in Minnesota, the woods have become something similar to me, but I have to admit that there's just nothing like my native mountains that capture my heart. I have so many experiences that I would love to share with you, but one of them has been sticking out to me in the last week, so I want to relate it to you now. I had climbed to the top of a fairly tall and, and rocky mountain. I wasn't one of these rock climbers that like climbs up sheer cliffs. I'm not that nuts, but I did like to climb up rocky mountains and do it freehand. And so I'd fought my way up to the top of this mountain, and when I finally got to the peak and took in the view that I had just earned, and by the way, it's one thing to drive to the top of the mountain and see the view. It's a whole other thing to work your way up and fight up to the top of a mountain and then see the view, right? You've earned it. And so there's something glorious about that view. And that particular day, it was just so beautiful. The, the sky was clear. The sun was shining. The temperature was good. The wind was blowing. It was just gorgeous and I was just filled with affection for the Lord. So I found the, the tallest rock that I could find on the on the tippy top of the mountain there and I climbed up on top of it and I lifted my hands up to the Lord and I began to sing to him how great thou art. In fact I thought I would like to sing this verse of it with you here. Let's sing together. When through the woods and forest glades I wander And hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees. When I look down from lofty mountain grandeur, And see the brook and feel the gentle breeze, Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. I was way up on a mountain. Nobody could see me. Nobody could hear me. Nobody could call the police and ask them to go over there and shut that guy up. And so I felt totally free in the Lord. My hands were raised. I was singing at the top of my lungs. And I swear to you, I look up, and here comes this white bird. I don't know if it was a dove, a pigeon, or what. I won't try to name it. I just know it was a white bird that came over and flew and just circled around me the whole entire time that I was singing. And just to put an exclamation point, I think, on the fact that this was a gift from the Lord to let me know He was with me, the moment I stopped singing, the bird just flew away. What an amazing thing, huh? There's probably some bird psychologist somewhere that would tell me that there was some other reason, but I wouldn't believe him. 
I wouldn't believe him. I think that was a sign from the Lord and it was an amazing experience of worship with him. I just can't even begin to explain. As glorious as that moment was and as much as I have looked forward to sharing something of it with you this morning, there's just no way that I could bring you to that mountaintop with me by telling you the story. In order for you to feel the glory that I felt, you would have had to be there with me and climbed up the mountain with me and fought to get there with me and smelled what I smelled and saw what I saw and felt what I felt and sang as I sang and saw the bird come around us. And if you had seen it with your eyes, you would have experienced the glory of that moment, right? In a way that's different than you are right now. There is a way to experience a sort of imagined glory in a story like that. But unless you're there, you can't really feel the impact of it. You can't feel the force of it. Throughout the course of my walk with Christ, and then again in recent days as we've turned our attention to the breastplate of righteousness, I have seen something that's much more glorious than anything I saw on the mountain that day. In fact, what I've seen in recent days again has paved the way for me to have the experience on that mountain. Everything that I'm about to explain in the next couple of weeks sets the stage for other experiences we have with Christ. And I long to bring you there and help you see what I've seen and help you, more than that, to feel what I've felt, to help you have the sense of the awe of the glory of God in these things that I have felt in recent days. And so I'm going to try with all of my heart to bring you there with me. This mountaintop is glorious. It's right at the center of the presence of Jesus Christ and it will be one of the things that will cause us to worship forever and ever and ever and ever. No exaggeration. We could call this mountaintop the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And without it, we would have no knowledge of God. None. Without this doctrine, we would still be alienated from God. All of us would still be in our sins. All of us would still have our relationship broken from God. We would still be underneath the hot wrath of the anger of God toward our sin forever and ever and ever if it were not for this peak. And it's glorious and I want to bring us there. So please pray for me that in this morning and in the coming weeks I will have the grace not only to explain the doctrine but to help bring you to that mountaintop with me so that we can see the glory of the Lord and worship together. We have to begin at the base of the mountain. And we might call that the tragedy and the horror of sin. This mountain, the imputed righteousness of Christ, emerges out of a horrible thing. And that horrible thing is called sin. I began this conversation last week, talked a little bit about sin, but I just have more on my heart to say. So I want to stay here for all the rest of this Sunday and just help us grasp a little bit more the nature of our problem with the Lord. Unless we see something of the depth and the depravity and the darkness of our sin, we cannot see the glory of the righteousness of Christ. They're absolutely related to one another. To the extent that you see your sin, you can see the glory of Christ as your Savior. If you minimize your sin, you minimize Christ as Savior. One of the things that breaks my heart the most about modern evangelical churches that want to not talk about sin and minimize sin is that they are cutting off from people the ability to see the glory of Jesus Christ as a Savior. We must see our sin if we see His glory as Savior. Last week I tried to explain the fact that sin is about breaking commandments. That's to be for sure. But much more so, and at the heart of it, it is about breaking relationship with the Lord. It is about breaking covenant with Him. 
It is about rejecting Him as God and putting ourselves as Lord over our own lives. It's, it's a way of saying to God, I don't really care what you think about my life. I don't care what you have to say for my life. Your commandments mean nothing to me. I am wiser than you. And I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Every time we sin, we essentially say that to God. And we break His heart. We break His heart, not just His rules. We break His heart. This is about our relationship with Him. To get us to understand that at the level of affection, because I don't want us to just comprehend it with our heads, I want us to feel this with our hearts. Last week, I brought to you the illustration of a marriage in which one spouse or the other had cheated on the other. You remember that? And I said that in the past when I have counseled couples where that has happened in their marriage, none in this church, but I've done that two or three or four times, when they came to me, we did not spend our time thinking about the implication of a rules violation, right? A rule had been violated in the marriage. In fact, several rules had been violated. Rules that were important. Rules that should have been kept Rules that were meant for the good, for the joy, for the prospering of that relationship. But much more was going on than the breaking of a rule, right? There was the violation of a human being when adultery was committed. There was the breaking of a sacred covenant when adultery was committed. There was the rejecting of a oneness that God had granted to that couple, created from before the foundation of the world, and granted a oneness to that couple that was supposed to display the beauty of Christ in the church. And the one or the other spouse rejected that. A rule was broken, to be sure, but at a much deeper level, a heart was ripped out, you see. This was a relational thing, not just a rules violation thing. If adultery was just about breaking rules, then it would not cause such intense pain. It would not take so long to get over. It would not take so long to rebuild relationships. But it does cause extreme and lasting pain. I've seen it. And maybe you have too. It is possible to get through it. Believe me, Christ is greater than any sin that can be sinned. And I'm telling you, hallelujah, you can make it through an adulterous situation. You can. But it will take a ton of time. It will take a lot of time to rebuild the trust and rebuild that relationship. And you know why? Because it wasn't just a rule that was broken. It was a relationship that was shattered. It was a covenant that was broken. It was a heart that was ripped out. And as I said last week, the feeling in the heart of the offended spouse is really just an echo in the feeling of the heart of God every single time we sin. Every time we break covenant with God, every time we reject Him, every time we choose our own wisdom over His, we break His heart as though we were committing adultery against Him. Every time. And believe me, friends, the standard of sin is a lot higher than we think it is, and we therefore commit sin a lot more than we think we do. Here's the standard. Romans 14.23. You just got to let this sink in. Romans 14.23. Whatever is does not proceed from faith is sin. Think about that. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now what I think that means is, whenever you do something, when God is not at the center of your heart and your mind and your affections, your intentions, your purposes... 
Whenever He's not the central thing you're after, you have sinned. If you build a hospital to save lives, but you do it with totally ignoring God, you have sinned in doing that good thing. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whenever you do not love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, you sin. And if you'll just take a little bit of time and think about that standard in light of your life, you will see that you and I sin all the time. I'm a pastor and it blows my mind to stop and think about how often I do things where God is not the main dominating central thing in my heart, in my affections. How often do I go about my day? Half my day is gone and I realize, wow, I haven't thought much about the Lord today. That is sin after sin after sin after sin after sin. And every time we do that, it breaks the heart of God. Just like we had committed adultery against Him. No exaggeration there. And just to show you that this connection between the feeling of an offended spouse in the light of adultery and the feeling in the heart of God in light of our sin is not, I'm not making this up, but it's biblical. I want to take you to two texts to show you where God Himself makes this analogy. These are thus says the Lord texts. Isaiah is writing, Hosea is writing, but it is the words of the Lord. So look, look first at Jeremiah 3, 6 through 9. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought, this is God thinking to Himself. After she's done all this, she'll return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. But she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. And just to be clear about that, if that doesn't make sense to you, stone and tree means they were worshiping false idols. They're worshiping false gods. They go up on high hills and instead of worshiping the Father, singing how great thou art, they worship other gods. They go under every green tree and rather than worshiping the Father, they worship other gods. And this one Part of that sentence really hits me when it says, because she took her whoredom lightly. It didn't mean anything to her. It's like, yeah, worship God today, worship another God tomorrow. No big deal. Well, it is a big deal. Every time that a spouse commits adultery against another, you know one of the most insidious parts of that is, is the lie goes through their head that it's really not that big of a deal. Of course, this isn't right, but it's, it's not that big of a deal. Well, it is that big of a deal. It will cause a lifetime of reverberations in that relationship and in other relationships. Same with the Lord. Every time we sin by going after other gods, it is that big of a deal. And we take our whoredom lightly. We just do. I do. We take it lightly. One more text. Hosea 5, 3-7. through 7. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim... You have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. 
For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. These are people who have taken the name of the Lord on their lips all day long, but they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah shall also stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Beloved, we just have to come to see that every time we sin, please please hear me, every time we sin, we don't offend God in the way that a hall monitor is offended when we break a rule, or the way that a police officer is offended when we break the speed limit. That's not the right analogy. Every single time we sin, we break the Lord's heart as if we had just committed adultery against Him. At an affectional level, that's how He feels. Just read the whole book of Hosea if you don't believe me about this. Hosea's entire life was meant to illustrate this fact. That just as the whore was to Hosea, so God's people are to Him. And therefore God feels like that about their sin. It's just horrible. God has been nothing but good to us. He has been nothing but faithful to us, right? Would anybody say that God has not been faithful to you? But in return, what have we given Him? We've given Him treason after treason after treason after treason. Only treason. Now somebody might object to that and say, Well, I do hear you. I don't want to minimize my sin. But being honest... Treason is not the only thing I give to God. Sometimes I do give Him right things. But just remember the standard we're talking about here. The standard is, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So anything you've ever done in your life that did not proceed from faith, God looks upon that as sin. And by that standard, I don't know how we can come to any other conclusion but that we have done nothing but committed treason against the Lord. And if you'll take the time to let that sink in on you, let your sin land upon you, it will grieve you to the depth of your soul. That happened to me last Friday. I was thinking about all this, preparing my mind and my soul for preaching to you today. And something of the reality and depth and darkness and extent of my sin really landed on me. And I wept. There are times when I cry. You guys know I'm a crybaby. cry all the time in front of you. But I wept this day. I mean, I was weeping, weeping, weeping because of the weight of my sin that the Lord allowed me to feel for a few minutes. And so what I did was I went to one of my good old friends, the Puritans. And uh, when I say good old friends, I mean four or five hundred years old. This book is called The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of prayers and devotions by Puritans. I just knew one of these guys would understand where I was at. And so I read some of their poems. And here's one called Yet I Sin that just exactly captured what I was feeling that day. Eternal Father, Thou art good beyond all thought, but I am vile, wretched, miserable, blind. My lips are ready to confess, but my heart is slow to feel, and my ways reluctant to amend. I bring my soul to Thee, break it, wound it, bend it, mold it, Unmask to me sin's deformity, that I may hate it, abhor it, flee from it. 
My faculties have been a weapon of revolt against Thee. As a rebel, I have misused my strength and served the foul adversary of Thy kingdom. Give me grace to bewail my insensate folly. Grant me to know that the way of transgressors is hard, that evil paths are wretched paths, that to depart from Thee is to lose all good. I have seen the purity and beauty of Thy perfect law, the happiness of those in whose heart it reigns, the calm dignity of the walk to which it calls. Yet, I daily violate and condemn its precepts. Thy loving Spirit strives within me, brings me Scripture warnings, speaks in startling providences, allures by secret whispers, and yet... I choose devices and desires to my own hurt, impiously resent, grieve, and provoke Him to abandon me. All these sins I mourn, lament, and for them cry pardon. Work in me more profound and abiding repentance. Give me the fullness of a godly grief that trembles and fears, yet ever trusts and loves which is ever powerful and ever confident. Grant that through the tears of repentance, I may see more clearly the brightness and glories of the saving cross. I've got to be honest and tell you that when I was younger in Christ and I would come across poems like that, I would often think that the authors were going a little bit overboard. I, I often felt like they just demeaned a little bit the wonder the, the power, the majesty of the grace of God. That was my main complaint. Is you're, you're minimizing the power of God's grace. You just don't need to go there with how you feel about yourself and your sin. But the more that I have grown in Christ, and the more that I've learned to see my sin not in light of other people or in light of my own standards, but I've learned to see my sin in the light of the holiness of Jesus Christ Himself, the more I've come to see that poets like this, far from being exaggerators or, or just, you know, morose kind of people needing some kind of therapy, beyond that, they're simply apprehending reality the right way. And they're feeling the weight of their sin. That's what sets them apart. And I think that's why I cling to the Puritans, because they felt the weight of their sin. It's one thing to be able to articulate it and teach a lesson about it and talk about it and all that. It's another thing to feel the tragedy and the weight of your sin. They're, they're much like the prophet Isaiah. You remember in chapter 6 of Isaiah when he was escorted into the presence of Almighty God. And he saw the angels singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And what was his reaction? Well, it was not like you see on television where people just were amazed and felt like they were floating in the air and there were flowers and all this stuff. It wasn't like that. He felt horror. He went to his face. When's the last time you were so struck with your sin you actually went down to your face? And that's what Isaiah did to hide himself from the Lord. I am an unclean man. I have unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. In the light of the holiness of God, Isaiah saw something of the tragedy of his sin and so did the Puritans. And on Friday, God gave me the grace to see something of that as well. 
And that might sound like really morose bad news to you, but the, but the paradoxical thing is this very sight of our sin is what sets up the good news of the Gospel. Without seeing the blackness of your sin, you can't see the beauty of His grace. Without seeing the depth of your sin, you can't see the height of His mercy. You must see your sin in order to see the glory of Jesus Christ in forgiveness. And I'm eager to talk with you about that, but, but for just another moment, I want to talk about the consequences of sin, the nature of the consequences of sin. I've tried to lay out for you this idea that sin is fundamentally relational in its character. Sin is not fundamentally a legal matter. Here's a rule, you broke it, you go to jail, you pay a fine, whatever. There are those implications, but fundamentally, sin is a relational matter. Therefore, the consequences of sin are fundamentally relational. If you'll think this through with me, you probably agree that as far as consequences go, there are legal consequences to sin. And not just on this earth, but also in heaven. There are sometimes physical consequences to sin. In fact, in one way you could say there always is. Because when Adam and Eve broke that simple commandment and ate a piece of fruit they weren't supposed to eat, what happened? All of creation fell under a curse. There are physical consequences of sin. But at the heart of it, right in the center of the target, there are mainly relational consequences. And at the center of the center of this target is our relationship with God. And when we sin, we create a rift between us and God that is so serious and so vast that we cannot even comprehend it, much less begin to dream of healing this thing or fixing this thing. There's just no way. We're kind of like a two-year-old playing with matches. How many of you ever did that when you were a kid? You found some matches in your parents' house. You knew you shouldn't do it, but you began to play with them. So let's imagine a two-year-old in an apartment complex finds some matches and begins to play, starts a fire, and the fire spreads very quickly, and the whole place goes down. A few people die. Several more are hurt. Everybody in the complex lost all their possessions. Gone in a heartbeat. Gone. That two-year-old cannot even conceive what he has just done, right? Can a two-year-old even grasp I just burnt down an apartment building? Can't grasp it. That two-year-old cannot grasp the consequences of his sin. He cannot. He has no concept of these people died, these people are hurt, these people lost all their financial records, these people lost all of their keepsakes, all of their photos, their computers, gone, gone, gone. He, ha he cannot possibly comprehend what he's done. And much more, there's no way he could make restitution. Not even for the rest of his lifetime. And you say, well, what if that two-year-old ends up to be Donald Trump? And makes billions of dollars. Then he could make restitution. No, he can't. You can't make restitution for life's lost. For photos lost. For keepsakes lost. For all that. He cannot make restitution. And we are a lot like that two-year-old. A whole lot like him. We have caused problems that we cannot even comprehend much less the consequences of them, and much less do we have any hope of fixing this problem that we have caused. And so, left to ourselves, we are in a really hopeless situation. Really hopeless. I mean as hopeless as hopeless gets. Look at Ephesians 2, 12-14. 
to see that on your own later. I don't want to read it now, but just on your own later. Look at that. You'll see we are hopeless, alienated from God, hopeless without Him, completely. Unless, unless God Himself, who has the capacity to comprehend what we've done, has the capacity to comprehend the consequences, and has the mercy inside of his heart to fix a problem that we cannot solve. He's the offended one, you see? He's the offended one. And our only hope is that the offended one would be so merciful that he would overcome his own offense and solve a problem we cannot solve and bring us into reconciliation with him. And glory be to God, this is the majesty of the gospel. He is so disposed to solve the problem we in ourselves cannot solve. Now I know you know this, but I want to go to the Word. And I want to pray that we can hear it this morning. Really hear it. So let me read three texts from you. Listen to the heart of your Father. Think of your sin. Listen to the heart of your Father. Ephesians 2, 1-10. through And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There is the deep, dark yuck of the bottom of this mountain that we've been thinking about for the last 30 minutes. Verse 4, But... God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Secondly, John chapter 3, starting in verse 14. These are words that Jesus Christ spoke to Nicodemus. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And of course, he's talking about himself being lifted up on the cross. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, should not pay the price for their sin, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And one more. 1 John 2, 1-2, and then 4-19. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, and how I'm glad that he said that, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
He is the propitiation for our sins. That means He took the penalty away. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And then a few chapters later, we love Him because He first loved us. Praise be to God. Praise be to God that in light of the darkness of our sins, He is so disposed to solve a problem we cannot even comprehend, much less solve on our own. And now that we have seen a little something of our sin, seen a little something of the willingness in the heart of God to heal what we have broken, we are now in a place at least to see the peak of the mountain called the imputed righteousness of Christ. We're not there We have a lot of work left to do to get there, but we can see the peak. If you look, you can see it. When you're climbing a mountain, and I've climbed hundreds and hundreds of them, most of the time you can't see the peak for at least half of the climb, just because of the angles of the mountain. And it's really exhilarating when you work your butt off, excuse me, and get up to the point where finally you can see the peak. There's the peak! And even if you know you have a lot of work left to do, it's exhilarating because you can see the goal. And I'm telling you, when you start getting a sense of your sin, this is so paradoxical, but if you'll just look up, you can see the peak, the glorious peak called the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And in the next few weeks, I want to climb up that peak with you. I want to work hard to get to the top and taste the glory up there and worship the Lord together. Maybe when I'm done with these sermons, we'll all raise our hands together and sing How Great Thou Art together as we taste His glory. But first, you have to think about your sin. Next week, I'm going to still be in California, so a good friend of mine named Steve Linetti, who's also a church planter out of Bethlehem, he's going to be here with you. He was a missionary in Indonesia for a number of years, had really, truly miraculous things happen. And here's a guy that's not sure he believes in miracles, and he had miraculous things happen. It will be thrilling to hear him talk. He was on the staff at John MacArthur's church for six years, and now he's back here in his native St. Paul, planting a church through Bethlehem. I'm very excited for him to be here next week and share with you. But when I get back, I want to put our hiking shoes on and climb, begin climbing to the top of that peak with you. And I promise you it will be glorious. But first, you've got to think about your sin. You must. 30, 40 minutes here in a service is not enough. If you, if you haven't wept over your sin ever, you don't get it. You need to come to the place where you would actually weep in seeing your sin. It might feel like you're being crushed. I promise you, the Lord is not crushing you. He's setting you up for a paradoxical glory. To the extent that you see the blackness, you will see the glory. So, in your study notes, I laid out a kind of path there for you. And I just want to encourage you to think about your sin and think about the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you for your faithfulness to me to cause me to think deeply about my own sin until I felt it to the point of weeping. That was a grace from you, Father. In that moment, it was difficult, but it was a real grace from you because it did set me up even later that morning to see the beauty of the imputed righteousness of Christ, that He has established a righteousness for me that I could not establish on my own. And so I say thank you and praise be to your name. And I pray for that grace to happen to everyone who's hearing this sermon. Lord, may we not be afraid to contemplate our sin. 
May we be willing to take your hand and follow you into the darkness that we would also see the glory. You are a great God. You're a strong Father. You have a hold of our hand. We will not get lost in the darkness. So please help us, Lord. Please give us the grace. And Lord, I cannot help but anticipate the glory of that peak there called the imputed righteousness of Christ. And I just want to give you thanks that You have forgiven our sins in Jesus and that You have counted us righteous in Jesus that we might have fellowship with You. Thank You for Your glorious act that emerged out of a merciful heart. We love You for that, Father. And we pray that You would help us now as we rise to sing our praise to You. In Jesus' name, Amen.